Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Okay. We are very excited to welcome our first guest to the Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series. Dr. Robert Wood is a professor of pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and chief of the Udo Wood Division of Allergy and Immunology in the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. Dr. Wood is an internationally recognized expert in food allergy and childhood asthma, and has published more than 200 manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Wood has served on the board of directors of the American Board of Allergy and Immunology and the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, where he is currently serving as president. Dr. Wood, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, we are halfway through your presidential year. What elements of your tenure have been the most satisfying so far? Well, I'd have to say that it's really the uh, working with the team around me. Uh, every week we have a planned agenda and then issues that come up that we never planned on uh, ever having to encounter. But with the group that uh, works with the president, uh, including our new EVP, Tom Fleischer, the executive committee of the board, the board of directors, and our great staff, the EDI, we're really well poised to take care of virtually everything that comes up in a very timely manner. And that teamwork, I honestly think, has been the uh, most satisfying part of uh, this first six months as, as Quad AI president. So it sounds like it takes a village to run an organization such as ours. It does. And then the last piece of it is something that uh, my predecessors uh, really established, which was a great working relationship with the college. Uh, that's not always been the case, but over the last few years, it's gotten better and better. And we really have a, a, a weekly conversation with the college about issues that affect, you know, the entire allergy immunology community. That's great. And I know that our members um, receive uh, wonderful communication from yourself and through the academy as well in regards to everything that you're working on. So thank you for that. Now, what advice can you offer for members of the Academy who themselves are interested in leadership roles within the organization? Well, that's a great question and and certainly uh, one of the most important issues to keep the organization moving forward. And my real advice uh, is to get involved uh, early and often. Uh, Become an active FIT member, join the new allergy assembly, uh, offer to join committees, and then get involved in committees. And... We also have formed over the last six or seven years a leadership institute that has produced a lot of the rising stars in our specialty. And we really encourage people who would be interested in leadership roles to apply for the leadership institute. 
And with all of the different uh, sort of paths toward leadership, uh, I think there's a real opportunity for whoever wants to get involved to truly be involved. Excellent. Um, and I know that the members who are interested and who are listening can visit the website uh, at www.quadai.org and also uh, stay tuned for the many emails that come our way announcing such initiatives as well. Now, to switch gears a bit, you have a long and storied career focusing on various aspects of food allergy research. How have you incorporated this into your presidential initiative for this year? Well, Dave, as, uh, as I think you know, the President's Initiative revolves around providing optimal care to the food allergic patient. And when I think about it, that's actually um, how I've spent my career, uh, trying to provide optimal care to the food allergic patient. And that certainly involves day-to-day -day interactions with patients in the clinic, but it also involves um, educational activities and working with trainees, uh, all trying to get the message that for each individual patient, you want to get the diagnosis right and provide the best care for whatever that patient may need to keep them safe or uh, potentially intervene in um, making their food allergy less of a burden on their life. So it sounds like you've been able to incorporate aspects of your own career, both clinically and in the field of research, and really apply it to your year as president. Um, have there been any challenges uh, that you did not anticipate in regards to uh, implementing that this year? Well, it's a it's a rapidly changing landscape, um, and uh, there are lots of challenges, uh, especially as I, as I think we'll talk about over the next few minutes, related to emerging therapies for food allergy, and really trying to come to grips with where the field stands right now, what we know, what we don't know. Uh, what will be best for patients, what the risks and benefits are, um, and um, really quite a wide spectrum of opinions uh, within our specialty about uh, how this field of treating food allergies should move forward. So that's something we're working to try to sort of carefully address, um, not trying to in any way obstruct progress, but also trying to make sure that the first bullet in my presidential initiative which is a rational approach to the treatment of food allergy, is really accomplished. Excellent. Now, I often get asked the question, why do so many children have food allergies today? No one had food allergies when I was a child, and I'm sure you've heard this many times as well. How do you typically answer? Well, I certainly hear it every day in clinic, um, and you know, I wish I had a good answer. Uh, what I uh, typically say um, is that, you know, we do agree food allergies are more common. It's not that they didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago, uh, but they're clearly more common and that there are almost certainly multiple factors at play. Uh, and I actually believe there are probably multiple factors at play that we've not even come to grips with yet. So I might talk for a, a minute about the hygiene hypothesis, talk a little bit about nutritional factors, other environmental factors. Uh, but really say that this is a field that still uh, has more unanswered than answered questions, and that ideally, if we knew the answers, we could intervene to prevent food allergy, uh, but that this is something that we don't know enough about the, the root cause of this rising prevalence in food allergy to truly implement changes. That, that you certainly highlight how complicated this all is, and I agree, I wish we had a single answer, but uh, we just don't have that at this time. 
Now, if I may ask, what year did you finish your allergy and immunology fellowship training? Uh, 1988, 30 years. Oh, okay. Um, so what aspects of food allergy diagnosis and management do you feel are most different uh, from when you first started practicing uh, 30 years ago? Well, I'll start out by saying, Dave, that they're far more the same than they are different. Uh, we still practice food allergy, you know, largely through um, avoidance and preparing patients to deal uh, with reactions that might occur. I can tell you that there are some negative aspects that have occurred over this time period, and that would be that as testing for food allergies has become more widespread, uh, I actually think we've seen a explosion in misdiagnosis of food allergy. And that actually gets to the second bullet in my president's initiative of making the right diagnosis. Now, on the positive side, uh, more allergists, thankfully, are willing and able to do oral food challenges to help sort out which of those positive skin tests or blood tests represent true allergy. And that, that thankfully, has expanded greatly, um, partly because the patient need demanded it. There were so many patients that they couldn't just uh, be referred to specialty centers like yours or mine to have their food challenges done. So that's been a positive aspect. Now, I will say the biggest uh, truly positive change has been going from an idea that we had in the 1980s and 1990s that the only way to manage food allergy was going to be through strict avoidance to really thinking um, that if a patient can tolerate a food, it is likely best to have that food in their diet, maybe even if they're having some mild symptoms with it, maybe even if it is causing a bit of their atopic dermatitis. And that's been especially the case uh, with milk and egg allergy, where we've learned that uh, half or maybe a little more than half of all patients with milk and egg allergy can actually tolerate the food in a baked form. And that's been sort of a, a life-changing um, change for um, you know, tens of thousands of patients uh, who are no longer strapped to a strict milk or egg avoidance, but can actually eat it in the forms that they tolerate. And that's been a a real game changer just over the last 15 years. Yes, I also agree, and I find that families find it very helpful when you can loosen some of the strict restrictions that are placed upon them in regards to the food avoidance measures. And do you have any advice for a clinician, whether it be a primary care physician or allergist or nurse practitioner who is tempted to perform IgE testing on a food that somebody is eating in their diet without problems? Well, the advice is that um, unless you have true concern uh, that that food is causing something untoward, uh, you're only going to get bad data back. And then you have bad data that you need to deal with. So we, we would strongly recommend that no one order food panels and that no one order um, uh, routine food testing on patients with, say, mild atopic dermatitis. Um, and this is, uh, you know, not just in our world, it's in the world of primary care, where you and I see patients every day who've had testing done uh, in their pediatric office uh, that um, wasn't really necessary, but led to test results that then had to be uh, followed up upon, if they were lucky enough to get followed up upon, rather than just put on strict avoidance of that food that they'd previously been tolerating. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a lot of folks are treating numbers and not patients in many different realms of healthcare. It's especially a risk in our field because our tests are not very good. <sighs> and when you have a test where, you know, uh, half or more 
positive tests are wrong, you start out with a you know a, a chance for a lot of bad medicine unless, as you said, you really look at that patient individually. Oh, thank you. I think that's very well stated. Now, over the past 20 years or so, we've had monumental changes in food allergy research um, and also management, which you touched upon. What would you consider to be some of the most important breakthroughs in the research realm? Well, there are, uh, I, could, I could probably mention a couple of dozen, but I'm going to highlight three. Uh, the first uh, is this aspect of baked milk and baked egg, which uh, really has been a practice changer for all those young kids that have milk and egg allergy, where it not only makes their life easier, but where we have really strong data that their path to uh, tolerating all forms of milk or egg will be significantly hastened if we're able to get the food in the baked form in their diet. The second I would highlight our um, our understanding of prevention. And we have an enormous way to go to really be preventing allergy. But we've gone from guidelines back in the 1990s and 2000 to 2008 that really were unhelpful or even harmful to now guidelines that are uh, potentially going to at least prevent a modest number, maybe more, of peanut allergy. And I think this is an enormous breakthrough. And then thirdly, um, and, and maybe most obvious, is development of the immunotherapy approaches that are moving toward clinical use. And this is something that we used to talk to patients about 15 and 20 years ago, but really didn't have um, any uh, controlled studies uh, until about 12 years ago. So this is a field that's moved very rapidly from you know, thinking at one point, it would not be possible to feed a highly allergic patient what they're allergic to, to now having treatment modalities that are moving through the FDA approval process. With all of these um, landmark studies and, and changes in the way we think about food allergy prevention and even treatment, uh, it can make your head spin. And I know that there are skeptics out there, including the, the parents and the patients that we're trying to reach and, and, and teach about this. Do you have any advice or, or your own approach as to how to approach that and discuss the rapidly changing research and evidence? Well, I think skepticism is the best thing they can have. And what I worry about more um, are people ready to charge into anything um, because it sounds good. And the reality is that the treatments that are moving forward um, are uh, huge advances compared to having nothing to offer, but have limitations. They have risks and and I think that it's most important that we are very careful uh, in discussing these possibilities with our patients uh, to be clear about the risks and the benefits, what they really mean, how different their life will or will not be when they're being treated. And um, I would actually congratulate patients who come in uh, skeptical rather than coming in with uh, intent to be treated no matter what we say about the potential downsides. Great. That's a great approach, and then it can hopefully open up a, a productive dialogue as well. Thank you. Now, where do you believe the next breakthrough in food allergy research will occur? I think the next breakthrough, and it's going to be breakthroughs because it's, uh, there's probably going to be many approaches, uh, but it will be in the next generation of food allergy treatments. And while we're you know, going to have the first generation available, um, I think that over the next 20 years or so, we're going to see uh, treatments that are far more sophisticated, 
um, and uh, far more effective with less risk. One of the great things that's happened, and this has happened only in the last five years, is that pharma has become interested in food allergy. When you go back 10 years ago, we had no pharma support for food allergy, and, and now we have a dozen companies who are actively involved in uh, bringing products uh, to study and hopefully to market. My dream is that in 20 years, it might take 30, but that in 20 or 30 years, we'll be using the word cure around food allergy treatments. Um, that's um, uh, a big dream, but I think with a, a bunch of different novel approaches now entering phase one trials, a number more that are gonna enter trials in the next one or two or three years, we're really gonna be seeing a next generation of treatments emerge in 10 or 15 years that will represent the next big breakthrough. Uh, that sounds very exciting, and um, I know that there are a lot of very dedicated researchers working towards those goals. Now, um, in the world of asthma, our management of individual patients has been revolutionized by our ability to apply phenotyping and use of biomarkers. Do you anticipate that we may be able to take uh, a similar approach to patients with food allergy? Uh, I certainly hope so, and um, it's a challenge, uh, but it's a challenge we have to meet. And we need to meet it in a, a couple of different ways. One will be um, uh, hopefully identifying the right treatment for the right patient. Uh, but even before that, um, we need biomarkers that would uh, help limit the need to do oral food challenges, um, something that would be far more uh, sensitive and specific than what we're using right now um, so that we'd be able to reduce, um, not eliminate, but reduce the number of food challenges that needed. Then one of my, one of my biggest worries um, is that as uh, these treatments become available, we not only want to have biomarkers to identify the right treatment for the right patient, we need to have biomarkers to identify response to treatment. We know that um, doing food challenges routinely um, may be difficult um, and patients who are being treated will not really know the degree of protection that they have without a food challenge unless we're capable of developing a biomarker, or really it will be a panel of biomarkers that will help um, identify the degree of response that someone has achieved with the treatment that they've chosen. Well, we've touched upon this a little bit so far, but if you could take a moment to please summarize or, or add additional thoughts. Uh, what aspects of food allergy diagnosis and management are most in need of additional attention? Well, I'll, I'll repeat what I just said about biomarkers and better diagnostic tests. The second is to sort of expand a bit on the prevention idea, uh, because um, I don't believe that the current uh, prevention guidelines are going to make a huge dent in the prevalence of peanut allergy, and they really don't provide direction for other foods. So I think we need um, uh, a, a huge amount of more work related to prevention, uh, both to expand the um, what we know about early in introduction of peanut more widely to the community and to address the other common food allergens so that we can uh, really stop worrying about treating food allergy because we've gotten good at preventing it. I tell my fellows we'll probably be treating it, maybe even curing it before we're effectively preventing it so they have a a long future ahead of them, uh, but I think that's something that's in, in great need of, of, of future study. 
But then lastly, as we already sort of alluded to, uh, to really keep charging ahead, uh, seeking this next generation of therapies. Okay. Um, and speaking of which, with the anticipated arrival of uh, FDA-approved products to use for peanut immunotherapy, what challenges do you think we will all face in regards to implementation and use of these products? Well, Dave, we could do an hour podcast on this question. <laughs> And I think there are challenges we can anticipate. There are other ones we don't even um, uh, know about yet. Uh, but I think they relate to the patient side and that we need to be able to really educate patients um, about the realities of these therapies, the risks and benefits, and help them make educated decisions. From the provider side, um, every uh, allergist is going to have to sort of think through uh, which of these approaches is going to be suitable for their office, whether they can really ramp up to do a medium or large-scale OIT program. Um, and that's something that is going to be, I think, uh, quite different from one uh, setting to another. There are also some uh, uh, non-medical aspects of this related to the finances of treating food allergy. And there are things we really don't know yet about out-of-pocket costs for patients, about provider reimbursement, and these are no doubt going to have an impact on how these treatments roll out. So I think that the, the challenges are certainly being considered. They're very smart people thinking these things through, um, but it's going to be a process that uh, will take, I think, several years to work through in a way that we become comfortable with. I've heard you mention a few times in regards to the topics we're discussing uh, the importance of thoughtful implementation. Um, would you agree that that's really at the heart of what we need to do with our testing and management of patients and new products and things along those lines? Oh, it is. And, you know, uh, it, it's so easy for a patient to be excited thinking we've created a cure for food allergy, uh, but they need to know, you know, the, the realities of what's been created or treatments that will give them an element of protection, but will not allow them to actually eat the food, will not get them away from carrying an EpiPen, will be a lifelong treatment as far as we know. Um, and patients really need to come into this process you know, with, with a realistic uh, picture of what the treatments do and, and do not offer. Yeah, I think shared decision-making will be more important than ever as, move, as we move forward. Oh, it's going to keep us busy. These will be long. These will be long visits. <laughs> yes, they will. Um, now, what is one actionable recommendation that you can make to allergists that are listening, or abroad, that can help them immediately improve the care they provide to patients with food allergy? Well, I could go back and talk about diagnosis, but I'm going to go to something very straightforward, and it's the fourth bullet in my presidential initiative, and that's uh, treatment of anaphylaxis. And I think that something we can all do better that's completely actionable this afternoon in clinic is to make sure that every patient is fully equipped to deal with their next accidental reaction uh, with an action plan that is clear and concise and with 24-7 access to epinephrine. And that is something that, you know, every time a new study comes out about these issues, it's shocking how few patients are actually prepared and how uh, um, infrequently epinephrine is administered uh, in the face of an anaphylactic reaction. So that's something we can take to clinic um, this afternoon and um, um, take action upon with each individual patient. 
Excellent. Thank you for that. Now, to switch gears a bit, we know that registration for the 2019 annual meeting in San Francisco is open. What are some of the highlights that attendees can look forward to during this year's meeting? Oh, I'm, I'm excited about the meeting. <clears throat> the program is uh, is in place, and um, I want to thank and congratulate the AMPC um, this year being led by uh, Dr. David Chaplin for uh, working uh, tirelessly to put together a program that will uh, provide the best in CME, but also the best in cutting edge science for all of the topics that we deal with in our specialty, which as you know, are, are, are quite broad. If you wanna know about food allergy, you'll be very pleased uh, because uh, it is uh, really a, a meeting that is uh, jam packed with uh, the best education and research in food allergy. I'm excited for it myself, and I think um, today's conversation uh, will be expanded upon even more so in person in San Francisco. And like you said, we'll have excellent uh, members and individuals there to help uh, stimulate some conversation among everybody. So that's great. Now, Dr. Wood, you are an extremely busy man. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today on our, our first recording podcast for conversations from the world of allergy. Before we um, sign off, do you have any additional thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, the only additional thought, um, I mean, there could be lots, but the, the main one I want uh, is to put forward uh, is to thank you and uh, the staff working on this um, for um, a new initiative in the Quad AI. And when we uh, started looking at, at some needs a few years ago, we clearly saw uh, the need for a better website. We also saw, uh, and I think um, thanks to you know input from our younger members and things, a, a real need to involve social media in a very central way within the academy in, in, in terms of uh, its, its uh, ability to get messages out um, and be in touch with our members as well as the public. So uh, thank you, Dave, for taking on the responsibility to, to lead this. Uh, we see it evolving pretty rapidly, and I think this podcast is a, a great start in the program that you put together. Oh, well, oh thank you for saying that. Um, I'm honored, and uh, it's, uh, quite frankly, it's a lot of fun, so <laughs> I think it's worthwhile as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.